Shalom Aleichem, and welcome to the Schmooze, the Yiddish Book Center's podcast. I'm Lisa Newman, and today I'm visiting with Rachel Rodansky, author of the recently published Yiddish in Israel, a History, published by Indiana Press. Rachel is Associate Professor of Judaic Studies at Brown University, and she's the author of Conflicting Identities, Labor Zionism in North America, 1905 to 1931, as well as many articles on political and cultural history of East European Jewish immigrants in the United States and Israel. Welcome, Rachel. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me today. And uh, a really quick thank you at the start of this for what has been a really interesting read um, in in your work. Um, so can you tell me a little bit about what drew you to the subject of the book? So uh, actually, um, I wrote a little bit about it in the, in the acknowledgement of the book. Uh, I got to this book uh, somehow by coincidence. Uh, years ago, I was sitting, when I still lived in Israel, I was sitting at home uh, watching TV, and there was a kind of show about Yiddish. And um, it wasn't a good show. And it was a kind of something, a combination of the talk show and the show. And people started saying all kinds of things about the history of Yiddish in Israel, which I knew then that had nothing to do with reality. And I wrote an article about it to Haaretz, um, an article that was published in the in the cultural literary section of the of of, the, of this newspaper, which is a leading newspaper in Israel, and to my surprise, it generated a huge and very heated debate. People said that I'm right and I'm wrong, and it went on for a few weeks. And then, you know, I thought to myself, well, it's it's a good topic for research, and at a certain point, I decided that I should write uh, a book about it. And uh, what I found out is that I didn't know when I started the book and I found out later that it actually uh, took me to a journey to my childhood in Tel Aviv. Because my parents were also East European immigrants. My father, my mother came during British mandate, but my father was a Holocaust survivor. And uh, my mom spoke Yiddish. I mean, she, she was from Lithuania, from Kovna, and she, of course, she knew Yiddish, but she spoke Hebrew at home with her younger siblings, and but my father came from Bialystok after the Holocaust, and he wanted to speak in Yiddish. And the reality was that my parents spoke among themselves Yiddish, but to me Hebrew. And it was like this: I mean, the, my adults and survivors spoke Yiddish, Israeli-born, and uh, people who came young to Israel uh, spoke Hebrew only. And uh, they didn't speak Yiddish to the younger generation. And in a way, it was, I wouldn't say a shame, but it wasn't very nice to speak Yiddish in public, to speak Yiddish outside the home, to speak Yiddish in the public sphere. And this division between Hebrew and Yiddish was very strong in my childhood. And I myself didn't tell anyone that I understand Yiddish. I didn't speak Yiddish, but I understood because my parents spoke Yiddish among themselves. And, you know, uh, writing this book uh, brought me back to those years and gave me lots of insights about it. 
It's interesting. In the introduction, you write, and I'll just grab a little bit of that, um, that uh, um, later in life um, you were enabled to understand how subtle was the negotiation of Yiddish speakers with both languages and how complicated and nuanced was the tension between the two for those who loved Yiddish and wanted a Hebrew future for the next generation. And I think you touched on that a bit, and it's interesting to me to think about that in terms of Jewish and cultural identity. And then I might lead into the question also um, about the idea of transnationalism, and wonder if you can speak to a little bit about all of those sort of complex issues there. Yes. So um, I would say this, um, there were, uh, generally speaking, two groups, um, uh, small groups of uh, what, I, what I'm calling the Yiddish activists, people who are Yiddish journalists, Yiddish actors, and they had one view, but there was the general view of people who understood that the language of the state of Israel is Hebrew. The language of the young generation is Hebrew. And, um, but their own language was Yiddish. Now we need to understand something that Yiddish speakers in Israel are not like Yiddish speakers in America. In Israel, people, uh, this is the Jewish state and Yiddish is a Jewish language. So they expected Yiddish not to be the main language, but to be welcome. And once Yiddish was not so welcome in Israel, they felt that they felt offended, strongly offended. How could it be that the leaders of the state, that I call them people who came from Ploinsk and Baboix, you know, Ben Gurion, the first prime minister, he came from Ploinsk. And I mean, generally speaking, most of the Israeli leadership during the, until, I would say, until the 80s, were from Eastern Europe. There were actually Yiddish speakers. They knew Yiddish. Some of them didn't speak Yiddish. They spoke Polish. But all of them knew Yiddish, understood Yiddish. How could they not respect Yiddish? And this is, uh, this is, um, this is part of the, um, I mean, the, the dual or the, the ambivalence to Yiddish, the tension. On the one hand, they understood that the next generation will not speak Yiddish. The next generation will speak Hebrew. But they wanted respect to Yiddish. And in the 50s, they didn't get it. What happened later is they couldn't come to terms with the fact that the 50s are over. And now nobody is interested in not being nice to Yiddish. And there is a huge difference between the attitude of the authorities to Yiddish and the general public. The general public uh, went on for decades to look at Yiddish as something that is not doesn't doesn't deserve a lot of respect, as you know, a nice language, a simple language, a language that doesn't need to be learned. Um, a language of of of, uh, of jokes, and uh, all these tenses characterize um, the attitudes. Uh, the attitude to all these tensions characterize the attitude to Yiddish in Israel. And, and it it means that Yiddish 
culture suffers a loss in terms of understanding all of the cultural production that was done in Yiddish, yes? Yes. Okay, so uh, when you say Yiddish culture, I mean, the vast majority of the people were exposed to uh, Yiddish, Yiddish, Yiddish press and Yiddish theater. High Yiddish culture is, uh, you know, high culture uh, is of interest to a small minority of the public. And normally uh, the, uh, the broad public is, is interested more in, in the press and in theater. Now, Yiddish press had a huge readership during the 50s, but it also uh, uh, signaled those people as people who don't know Hebrew, which was not a good thing in Israel. Uh, Yiddish, uh, Yiddish theater uh, didn't develop well. Um, the people who were uh, engaged in it um, used to accuse the government and all kinds of restrictions uh, that were imposed on Yiddish theater during the 1950s. But the truth is that after 1951, there were no restrictions at all uh, for Yiddish theater. But um, uh, this, um, the economic situation in Israel was very dire. There was uh, the, the uh, austerity regime. People didn't have money. And uh, Yiddish theater didn't develop well. It was most of it. It was uh, operettas and uh, what we call in Yiddish Shun theater. And uh, the vast majority voted with their feet. They didn't go, so it didn't develop. And the attempt to start Yiddish theater in the 70s, including um, art theater, didn't succeed at all, with one exception, which was the uh, Megile by Itzik Manger that was performed in 1965 by the by the bush and family but this was really an exception because what uh what created the huge huge unprecedented success of dimigile was that it was greatly accepted by the hebrew press the hebrew press defined dimigile as an uh as a uh, as an art theater on the highest possible level. And the, you know, and the, the audience flocked. But even people who didn't understand Yiddish and they viewed it as, um, as a very high level art theater, not as Yiddish theater. But at that time, uh, uh, it was also the time that Yiddish was a little bit, had a little bit success, but it, it lasted for uh, some two years and that's it. Which um, brings me to a quick question, which is, um, just mention what the time frame is that you cover in the book. Okay, so the book starts, uh, it's, you know, at, um, from the proclamation of the state in 1948, uh, with, uh, an, with, with, an, uh, with a chapter on the cultural policy of the state of Israel, and uh, how, how the... Um, what was the, the framework into each Yiddish was brought, and uh, what was the attitude of the state uh, to, to non-Hebrew languages, which we call all the, the languages which are not Hebrew, and especially the, uh, the Jewish languages, which were, of course, Yiddish was the strongest and the, the largest one then, but um, all the other Jewish languages, which 
the, um, the authorities views as competing with Hebrew, especially Yiddish. Although, you know, after the Holocaust, Yiddish was not competing with anything, but uh, the authorities views it as competing with Hebrew and as an obstacle on the way of uh, instilling, um, uh, teaching the Hebrew language and instilling it. Uh, and then uh, I'm going to a chapter on, on the Yiddish press uh, in, the, in the 50s and 60s, which was really, really extremely difficult to the very vibrant Yiddish press in Israel, during, especially during the 50s. Um, and then Yiddish theater during the 50s and the 60s. And also during the 50s, uh, there, were, um, there was a vibrant uh, Yiddish theater scene, but um, every show was for a very short time because um, they, uh, it was not very successful in terms of the bill books. Now, then I have a chapter about, um, uh, about the, the Golden Ecate and Avrom Sutskevil, which is a very important, um, which is a very important component of the Yiddish scene in Israel. And then, uh, and then a chapter about Yiddish literature, young Yiddish writers who tried to write Israeli literature and to integrate in the Israeli literary scene and I'm arguing that they actually offered an alternative uh, master Zionist master narrative, which was different from the uh, master narrative of the Hebrew writers. And um, then I have a chapter on, on the years of the 70s until the end of the 20th century and the return of Yiddish to the public, uh, to the public sphere in a very different way as part of the changes in Israeli society, in uh, Israeli culture. And I'm arguing that actually Yiddish changed with Israeli culture, with, Israeli so with the changes of Israeli society and the changes of, um, of the Israeli culture. And with the, toward the end of the 20th century, when, you know, the first generation, people who came from Eastern Europe uh, you know, uh, biology does what it does. And the second generation, people who were born to either came to Israel as babies or were born in Israel, uh, they were looking back and they wanted to, they wanted their personal, their private memory. Uh, and their private memory included Yiddish and there was nowhere to hear Yiddish. And this created actually the ground for the emergence of the Yiddish theater in Israel, which is now a very strong theater. And um, some people don't even know that it's not uh, a public theater, which is it, no, it, which is, it is not, and it's very successful. But uh, the grounds for its success was uh, the return to, um, to the private memory and the bringing in the private memory into the public scene and um, the uh, interest of the second generation of Yiddish speakers who are now in the late 50s or in the 60s and they want to go back. And um, I would also say that uh, the development of Yiddish in Israel also in many ways reflects the entire history of the state of Israel and the history of, of the Israeli culture. And uh, there is 
all the time a kind of interaction between the development of the general Israeli culture and the place of Yiddish in Israel. Do you feel like, and, and I would suggest that, there, that this was a sort of a tug of war between Yiddish and Hebrew and aspects of both um, in terms of culture and history. Um, were there one or two leading voices on both sides of the conversation? Well, uh, it's, it's, it's a complicated question because uh, it's not black and white. So uh, we need to understand two things that, you know, in times like we are talking about, especially in the 50s, when there is a shortage of, of paper and there is a huge, huge effort to teach Hebrew and to make Hebrew the language of the country that, uh, is, that, that consists of, of, of immigrants. We need to, to remember that in Israel was created an unprecedented situation that the immigrant population outnumbered the veteran population. Most Israelis were immigrants and they came from different countries and they, and they, they used different languages. And the Israeli uh, authorities tried to teach Hebrew to make it the language of the country and also to create and call it even to invent an originally Israeli, Israeli culture. Now, in order to achieve this, they tried to use all kinds of means. I'm, I'm writing a lot of, of it, uh, about it in the book. They tried to use all kinds of means that seems to Yiddish speakers, because they expected Yiddish to be welcome, as a declaration of war. The authorities didn't see it as a declaration of war. On the other hand, there were people with interests, um, and I will give you an example. Uh, in the 50s, there was um, a severe shortage of print um, paper in Israel, and actually in the entire world, there was a shortage of this kind of paper. Now, Israel didn't have any uh, Israel didn't have uh, foreign currency, Israel didn't have raw materials, and there was no way to get paper, and there was a kind of, of um, rationing of paper. Now, there is a competition, who will get the papers, the Yiddish newspapers or the Hebrew newspapers? Now, the editors of the strong um, and, and big uh, Hebrew dailies don't want the Yiddish press to, to, get, uh, to get the paper, so they start a really a fight against Yiddish papers and they initiate all kinds of, of, of committees that uh, and they try even to go to the to the Knesset to the Israeli parliament and to to uh, to, to convince uh, Knesset members to to pass bills against the Yiddish press which was not was never successful it, it was never done the same people who are fighting against the Yiddish press and I'll give you a name in a minute, are supporting Yiddish theater because they have no interest against Yiddish theater. Now, Azriel Karlibach, who was one of the greatest Israeli editors and, news and, um, and journalists ever, and he died at a very young age, was actually leading all efforts against the Yiddish press. But he's the man who wrote a very 
sharp uh, article in his newspaper, Mariv, against restrictions that were imposed on Jigan and Schumacher. And nowadays, everyone uh, quotes this article and says, oh, he was a fighter for Yiddish. But when he had no conflict with his own interest, he was fighting for Yiddish. When he had an interest to, to limit or to restrict Yiddish, he was fighting against Yiddish. So it's not black and white. Now, of course, people who are the Yiddish journalists, um, you know, uh, uh, the late uh, Yitzhak Luden, who was uh, one of the, he was the last Yiddish, original Yiddish, Yiddish journalist in Israel. Until, he last until his last day, he used to say, he used to say that um, the Israeli authorities assassinated Yiddish. This is the word he used. But I would say they didn't, I mean, they should have shown more compassion. This is the truth. Everyone had his own interest. Everyone, people had their own goals. Uh, times were very difficult. Uh, and um, people didn't have compassion to spare. This is the problem. This is, this is what really happened. To say that there was a, a, a war between Yiddish and Hebrew, it's not true. And um, I'm glad you mentioned that the paper shortage, that was a fascinating aspect for me um, in reading about that in terms of maybe sort of illustrating the larger, the larger story intentions. I wonder as a last question for you, if you might share what could have been the most sort of surprising aspect in working on research for the book. Well, um, I think that um, I think that the most surprising aspect for me was how the authorities actually were so ambivalent about Yiddish, how the same people who allegedly suppressed Yiddish also supported it and also used it and appreciated it in the way that we didn't expect. You know that all the political parties and all the party activists who are against Yiddish, they use Yiddish. All the political parties had their own Yiddish, uh, all own Yiddish newspapers. All of them use the same the same tricks to work around the uh, the restrictions of Yiddish. Um, there was uh, a, li a licensing policies which we didn't talk about. And uh, all the political parties who actually were part of the licensing policies used the same tricks to work around this licensing policy uh, as the private uh, publishers. And uh, the most interesting thing is that the Labour Party, which was then called Mapai, and this was the hegemonic party of the State of Israel, and the leader of Mapai was uh, Ben Gurion. They are accused in the, I would say, in the in the public uh, thinking as suppressing Yiddish. But Mapai, the Labour Party, was the uh, the organization that actually purchased the main Yiddish press, let's deny it, and published it from 1960 to the late 90s. The last Yiddish 
a newspaper that, that, that remained as a daily was actually published by the Israeli authorities. They did it because they understood during the 50s, right? They understood the power of Yiddish. They understood that the Yiddish readership is, um, is a very, uh, is an intelligent readership, is um, also uh, um, an involved readership, and they wanted to reach out to this readership. There was no way to do it only by purchasing the strongest Yiddish newspaper. And I wouldn't say that dictating its policy, but a little bit making the criticism against the government more moderate. And this, actually, this is the surprise because it shows how the leadership, how the authorities who are allegedly, who allegedly were against Yiddish, understood the power of Yiddish and appreciated Yiddish. And the authorities actually supported Yiddish for decades. And this was entirely contrary to the public view of the, about the situation of Yiddish in Israel. So, um, Rachel, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, thank it's you a for really fascinating, me. It's a fascinating read. Um, for our listeners, again, the book is Yiddish in Israel, A History by Rachel Rojansky. It's published by Indiana Press. It is available for purchase everywhere, I think. <laughs> and um, it makes for a really interesting, an interesting read, an informative read, and um, an ensuing conversation. So thanks again, uh, and hope to have you back when you publish your next book. So until then, stay well, and thanks again for taking the Thank time today. Thank you very much. Okay, be well. You've been listening to The Schmooze, a production of the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. To subscribe to this and other podcasts, visit YiddishBookCenter.org. I'm Sarah Blakefeld. Be well, be healthy, and tune in again soon. Thank you.